Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious life. The people in our lives can leave lasting impressions that shape us as a person. Sometimes it's for the better. Other times it can create a monster. On November 26, 1932, a man was born who would later blame his crimes on the women in his life. The women who shaped him into the monstrous granny killer. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. John Wayne Glover was born on November 26, 1932, into a working-class family in Wolverhampton, England. From an early age, John began getting himself into trouble, earning a few petty theft convictions in his early teens and dropping out of school at just 14. He went on to serve in the British Army, but after they found out his rap sheet, he was promptly ejected, after which he immigrated to Australia, where he had to find a livable wage despite having no qualifications and very little education. But a change of location didn't stop him from earning a few more convictions, and after living there just a short while, he was convicted of two counts of larceny and stealing. A few years later, he added two counts of assault, two of indecent assault, one of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and four more counts of larceny. 
Despite all of these charges, he was sentenced to a three-year good behavior bond. In 1968, just after his sentencing, John met a woman, got married, and had two daughters. This marriage seemed to, for the moment at least, give John's life the meaning it needed to turn everything around. He became a good father, a good husband, and a suburban neighbor who raised no suspicion. And the cherry on top of his new life was the selfless decision to volunteer as a charity worker with the Senior Citizen Society on top of his job as a sales representative for the 4 and 20 Pie Company. On the surface, it seemed as though John could be a prime example for rehabilitation or the adage that a good woman could turn a man's life around. However, behind that perfect exterior and the jolly smile lay a man whose troubled relationships with older women was about to turn deadly. John always had issues with his own mother. Frida had several husbands and boyfriends while John grew up, and their relationship remained strained. Then, when he married Gay Rolls, came the addition of her parents. The couple was living in his in-law's home in Mossman when, in 1976, his own mother joined them in Australia. Less than 10 years later, breast cancer took Frida's life, and John was diagnosed with the same cancer, something extremely rare in men. He had a mastectomy to remove the cancer, but due to the surgery, developed a prostate condition that left him sexually impotent. He took his diagnosis and his sexual difficulties as a personal attack from his mother, reaching out from the grave to cause him pain one last time. It was after this that he began to unravel all over again. Beginning in 1989, the same year that his mother died, John Wayne Glover killed at least six elderly women over the course of just 14 months. At this point in his life, he had been married for 20 years, had children, and was in his late 50s. Not your typical time to start a career as a serial killer. The Granny Killer, as he was soon dubbed, began his attack on January 11, 1989, when 84-year-old Margaret Toadhunter was walking down Hale Road where she was spotted by John. He parked his car, walked over to the woman, punched her in the face, and stole all of the contents of her purse, using the cash to drink at his favorite watering hole. Margaret, despite the force he used to hit her, was able to survive the attack. Therefore, hers was just seen as a random mugging. Not so lucky was an 82-year-old woman named Gwendolyn Mitchell, who, less than two months later, was hit repeatedly with a hammer to the back of her head as she tried to enter her apartment. Once she fell down, he continued to hit her in the head and body, breaking several of her ribs. He fled with her purse and $100, leaving her lifeless body to be discovered by two schoolboys. She died shortly after the ambulance arrived. No eyewitnesses and no evidence that could be collected after some well-meaning neighbors, assuming she had simply fallen, had cleaned up the scene. And since Margaret survived her attack, police did not connect the two crimes. Gwendolyn's attack was written off as a random, isolated incident. Another mugging gone wrong. Next was Lady Ashton, the 84-year-old widow of Impressionist artist Sir Will Ashton, who was attacked on May 9, 1989, on her walk home. John put a pair of gloves on, followed her into the foyer of her apartment, and beat her with a hammer. He then threw her on the ground, dragged her to an alcove where she began to fight and almost overpowered him until he began repeatedly hitting her head on the pavement until she was finally knocked unconscious. 
He then took off her pantyhose and strangled her to death before rearranging her shoes and walking stick at her feet and leaving with her purse and heading back to the bar. See, that was one of the worst parts of John Glover's crimes, the ability to quickly return back to normal life like nothing happened. He even commented to the staff at the bar that he heard sirens and hoped it was not another deadly mugging. When police arrived and saw the violent state of her body, they knew they had a serial killer on their hands. On June 6, 1989, John molested 77-year-old Marjorie Mosley at the retirement home in Belrose. She was not injured and reported the crime, but could not remember what the man looked like. A few weeks later, he did the same thing at a different nursing home and was even questioned about the event, but was ultimately let go. He assaulted a woman in August and in October, pretending to be a doctor and ran his hand up the dress of a resident in a North Shore nursing home. He was never suspected of any of these molestations and who's to say they were his only ones while working with the elderly over the years. On October 18, 1989, John followed 86-year-old Doris Cox to her retirement village and rammed her face into a brick wall. She was able to survive her attack, but could not give a description of her attacker, nor the events leading up to it due to her dementia. And like before, the scene had been cleaned up by some well-meaning neighbors. Next was 85-year-old Margaret Pahood, who was beaten to death on November 2nd, 1989, and 24 hours later, he struck again and killed 81-year-old Olive Cleveland. Then a small break came when 93-year-old Muriel Falconer was killed on November 23rd. Her scene, for the first time, was not washed prior to the police showing up. So this time, they left the scene with some forensic evidence. Then, John Glover made a series of fatal mistakes. First was the January 1990 assault of another woman in a nursing home while he was making his pie sale rounds. This time, the woman not only remembered him, but called for help in time for staff to see him flee and call police. Investigators tried to contact John for an interview, but when they called, his wife informed them that he was in the hospital after a failed suicide attempt. He left behind a note saying, no more grannies, and that Essie, his mother-in-law, started it all. It was at this point the police investigating the assault turned his information over to the Granny Killer Task Force. They didn't want to interview him about the murders, worried he would grow suspicious. So instead, they placed him under 24-hour surveillance. It was during this period that, on March 19, 1990, John went to the home of a 60-year-old friend, Joan Sinclair. Police watched on as, hour after hour, John failed to leave the home. They grew concerned around 5 p.m. and got permission to enter at 6. When they did, they found a hammer lying in a pool of dry blood, Joan lying naked from the waist down with pantyhose tied around her neck, her battered head wrapped with blood-soaked towels, and damaged genitals on display. When they went looking for John, he was lying unconscious in a filled bathtub. John was arrested once he was cleared medically and, when confronted, with admitted to the granny killings. He was brought to trial on March 28, 1990, where he pleaded not guilty and his lawyers attempted to prove diminished responsibility. That his mother-in-law and mother were a trigger and, when Frida died, he had to take his aggression out on someone else. The prosecution argued that the way he staged the scenes were a clear indication that he knew exactly what he was doing. 
he was found guilty and sentenced to six life sentences. John Wayne Glover was imprisoned at Lithgow Prison until, on September 10, 2005, he was found hanging in his cell, having completed suicide the night before. He was 72 years old. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on November 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.